Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Good evening, everybody. Matthew from Don't Unfriend Me, episode 118. Wonderful to be here. It's Friday night, and I'm feeling all right. All right, all right, all right. Friday, March 12th. It is Red Friday, 6.44 p.m. Everybody wears red on Red Friday. Remember, everyone deployed. You notice that I went back to the old windscreen on the mic, if you cared, and I wanted to try it out. I think I know how to stay away from the microphone, and... It's always obtrusive and big, and I've noticed that a lot of podcasters use just this. It adds a little bit of warmth to the mic, so we're going to see how it goes tonight. Let me know down below. I haven't changed anything else, and I may need to tune it in. It hopefully will keep up with the same quality that you've grown accustomed to. Good to have you. What are we talking about tonight? Well, a couple things. One is there is a feminist, and this lady had some things to say about stay-at-home moms, and I'll share a couple stories with you and tell you my opinion of this, and I won't hold back. I've got a couple of things to say. And then I want to talk about China. And I did an episode on Iran recently. There's a couple people on the show who I religiously speak with. I won't mention names because um, a couple of them are still in military intelligence, still in the military as we speak, and I'm sure they'll have something to chime in on. Um, There is a person with a last name, Gray, who I constantly talk to, and several others, friends who I served with, and also just listeners who are also still in. And I will tell you that China, although Iran is probably the biggest threat from an American perspective, from us getting involved with Iran, I think China would tell you that their targets are set on the United States. And a conflict most assuredly will happen over Indochina. And it's a conflict that has not necessarily reared its ugly head since Vietnam, but it has been laying in wait. So we'll talk about that. And and there's very good reason for the United States to be completely worried about China. And I think it's something that America has not put themselves in a position like this since the arms race with Russia. And there's some good and bad, and we'll talk about it. And I think you'll find it interesting, if not a little scary. America is not used to being in in, in an underdog position against any country. And in China, I'll let the cat out of the bag. We are. So I'll explain why. I'll tell you a little bit about it, see what you think. And I appreciate it. I hope you stick around for the whole show. And we're going to talk about something else. Uh, I guess we can do it right now. Is I get a lot of questions on the site in regards to videos. Like I'll, yesterday's a great example. Um, With the time change, in the comments I put time change, and I'll paraphrase, daylight savings time is a paganistic ritual. You know, blah, 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 blah. And someone came on and goes, I really don't understand why you said it, say it's a pagan ritual. And and proceeded to write me an epitaph, uh, a shellacking in the digital ones and zeros landscape about what it meant. Well, first of all, there's two things. One 
is that everything you said I explained in the video, number one. Number two, if you don't watch the video, I promise you 100% of the time you won't understand the video. You certainly won't understand the title or the explanation. If you're going to be lazy, then I'm just going to be lazy in my response and tell you vanilla pudding and frog gizzards. Because that's as arbitrary as your comment. So to answer your long diatribe about how you couldn't possibly understand the episode that you didn't watch, vanilla pudding and frog gizzards is my answer. I hope you find that as useful as I found your post on the episode that you didn't understand that you didn't watch. A German, a Frenchman, an Englishman, and a Brazilian appreciate the picture of Adam and Eve in paradise, and they're staring at it together. The German comments on it immediately and says, look at what's... Prof- I can't even do a German accent. Uh, Miss Grebels. No, I can't do it. I can't do it. I, I don't even want to try. Look at what perfection of bodies. She, slender and haired. He, with his athletic body, his profiled muscles. They must be Germans. Adam and Eve must be. Frenchman. I knew Frenchman. I don't believe it. The eroticism from the figures is evident. She, so feminine. He's so masculine. They show. They know that soon temptation will come. They must be French. The Englishman ponders. Oh, gosh. I got to get a Harry Potter. See the serenity of their face, Harry. <laughs> I can't do it. See the serenity of their faces, the delicacy of the pose, the sobriety of gestures. They can only be English. It's so funny. I can do it off the cuff, but I can't do it when I'm reading. It's interesting. Okay. And after a few seconds of silent contemplation, the Brazilian states, I do not agree. Look well. They have no clothes, no house, only have one apple to eat, and believe they are in paradise. They can only be Argentines. Recorded from an undisclosed location. Always honest. Always direct. So sit back. Relax. Don't unfriend me starts right now. You know, sometimes impersonations are really easy and other times they aren't. And uh, I apologize, folks. Hopefully you got the joke. Socialism. Get it? Ha ha. It's fantastic. My name is Matt Spear. I am with Don't Unfriend Me and I appreciate it. And to to the listeners who contribute, I'm not trying to make you have a bad day. I am just saying. It's frustrating. You make a show, 45 minutes, 30 minutes of your time. You do a lot of research. You collect articles. You read up on your own. You write your own. You borrow from other people. You put it all together into a smorgasbord or a cornucopia of transcending thought. And someone goes, I have no idea what you you said in the entire episode, I couldn't get your point, and I completely disagree. And you're like, great, what did you disagree with? The episode title. So it, 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 if you don't have the time, don't watch. Maybe this isn't your episode. If you disagree with something somebody says, recognize that 
in the written text with 15 words that I'm capable of writing in a title, sarcasm isn't necessarily going to be eclipsed or achieved for that matter. And when I go into the episode details, yes, I can write forever, but I, I, this is why I have the show. So I don't have to write articles. In fact, I'm finding it a struggle on my blog to write articles simply because it's exhausting and I don't have the time. Speaking of blog, you can go to www.donunfriendme.com. Here are all those wonderful places right here that you can visit on social media. The site has been updated. Much easier to follow. There's a couple broken links. I must warn you when it comes to the compendium vault. Don't worry about that. The rest works. You can listen to the podcast, watch the show, everything, and not leave the site. You can make comments. You can tell me that you don't understand the episode after you didn't watch it. You can do all those things, and it's there for you, and I hope you take part. It'll be fun. So tonight, we're going to dive into this, and there's some interesting things going on in the world, and I wanted to take a moment and talk about my wife. Now, I have said this before. I think feminism is a complete waste of time. Wow. Let me explain. Do I believe that there's sexism in the world? Well, I certainly absolutely agree that there is. Look at Governor Cuomo and what's going on in New York. And if you, I'm probably going to do an episode on Saturday, this article that this victim wrote brought a tear to my eye and it helps me understand that sexism is real in the world i'm going to be transparent with you i am not the cat's meow i can't find any woman and just be like hey look at me see let's go it's it's never really been my thing but it's not like i haven't dated a ton and done my fair share of one-night encounters and things like that in my impetuous youth. And, and I have talked about my inability to be a good human being and a good man when it came to the opposite sex. So although I'll hold, hold the door open and say, yes, ma'am, no, ma'am, and I show respect, when it came to relationships, I was that jerk. And when I found my wife, everything changed on that day. But I will tell you that I went through a period where my own wife probably didn't even want to look at me. I was horribly fat, out of shape, unmotivated, hated my life. And then I just decided to completely change and take it over. And since then, I've had um, some of that come back. And I would say the, the fairer sex appreciate with a glance once in a while or feeling stray eyes looking when they never used to look. And that's not conceited. It's just being honest. And I think conversation usually creates more of a bond with anyone. And you can look at somebody, but if there's nothing behind the eyes, then the relationship is doomed to fail. That's in friendships and relationships, in marriage and everything else, is you can be attracted to somebody physically, male, female, doesn't matter. But if there's nothing, the lights are on, but nobody's home, that's doomed to fail. And I've always had the gift of gab, something I've always done. But the reason I mention this sexism is because it does go both ways. And it's more prominent in the workplace towards males than you would think. Males just don't talk about it. But when we reflect and we think, it's most assuredly happening. And if we had some honest men in this show who could tell you in the comments below, I think they would all 
tell you at one point or another, there's been some sort of harassment that has been unwarranted that they haven't appreciated, but maybe not in the moment. And it most assuredly happens to women more often. I, I understand that. But I have been in a situation myself where there was unwanted advancement and all advancement is unwanted at this point. And I felt I was powerless to say anything. From a belief standpoint, from a popularity standpoint, from being taken seriously, and and that's hard. So I think people say it doesn't happen to males. The 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 the, the hugs or the the grip on the arm, that was the big one. When I finally started lifting and and packing on the pounds, when people when I would be hugged by some of the opposite sex who I felt was getting a little inappropriate or too close or anything else, there would be this hug that happened of the feeling of the back or the squeezing of the shoulder or the biceps when they're talking to you. And it was obviously not a casual greeting. And, and guys who stay fit will tell you this, that they've experienced this. Now, am I damaged from this? Am I like, oh, woe is me? No, I didn't care then. I don't care now. And it certainly doesn't bother me. I believe people sometimes show familiarity based upon a relationship they've had or currently to other people and can't get out of the mentality. Give you an example. I call my wife, honey or sweetie. And I've, I tell her, I love her off the end of a phone call. Well, I've been talking to a subordinate and nonchalantly just say, okay, well, I'll talk to you later. I love you. Bye. And I hang up and I'm like, holy crap. I just told a guy, I love him or a female subordinate call up and go, I was in wife mode. I'm so sorry. It's 90% of my conversation. And it was late in the day and I'm tired. And I just said, I love you. And by the way, I do love you, but I don't love you. Or we're, we're, we're at a social event and we just maybe had a few drinks and the conversation goes in a place we don't want to, or someone sitting next to you from the female persuasion who may be attractive, but you're not wanting to cheat and have an affair, but there is a pole there that's familiar and you have to tell yourself that's not my wife. Absent-mindedly, we've all been there. So I understand it. And I don't consider people are trying to, you know, if someone grabs my Johnson, I'm going to say, thank you. And then you need to let go. And can you loosen your grip, please? Because it's just, it is what it is. And in the male-dominated society, you're going to have some of that happen, especially in the workplace. And you kind of have to just say, I'll, I'll, I'll move on. Where women have to share their truth. And that's also extremely courageous and difficult. And I can't believe how much I related to this lady's story about how she felt I'll just accept it and go along with it simply because this is a powerful person and it's acceptable because I'm a woman. And that is the biggest crock of shit I've ever heard in my life. And it absolutely just infuriates me. And the same holds true for a man. If a little girl is assaulted by a teacher, 15 years old and taken advantage of by a male teacher, that's rape. But if it happens to a little boy, everyone's like, geez, wish my teacher did that and look like that. But it's just as damaging. So the whole point where I say sexism is real, it is real. 
and and so are predators and all of it is absolutely real but feminism has nothing to do with that feminism was the push for the rights of equality based upon male versus female that has been eclipsed there is not one policy that you can tell me that is a disadvantage for females over males tell me the one cite the policy below you don't pay more taxes you are not forced to serve in the military Pay rates are decided by companies based upon experience, and that's been proven. The pay gap's a myth, and there is no policy. In fact, there's a policy that says you can't have pay gaps. You can't have differential treatment towards one sex over the other. You have independent bathrooms. They don't make you go men and women in the same place. There's certain insurances that you're covered. Pregnancy is covered for females. It's not covered for men. And, of course, that would be stupid to have that, but... Paternal leave, something that was added for the patriarch later, but we didn't have for years. So you can't tell me a policy that that subjugates women to unfair treatment in the workplace or in society because there isn't one. Feminism essentially has now turned into a man-hating trope. The fourth wave and third wave of feminism is essentially man-haters. And now woman-haters, a certain type of woman, specifically Republicans and stay-at-home moms. They're the devil. They're the new devil. Now, for the lady who's going to come on and go, why do people think that stay-at-home moms are devils? I'm a stay-at-home mom, and I'm not Satan. Watch the episode. Please. But this whole opening to this is based upon Jill Filipovic. And she has criticized stay-at-home mothers in a very lengthy Twitter thread where she loves to hear herself talk or right, as I like to hear myself talk, on Thursday, suggesting there are unambitious and bad example for children, that stay-at-home moms are unambitious, unmotivated, and bad examples. Filipovic was reacting to a post from Slate, that wonderful, horrible, liberal, red, socialist propagandist magazine, concerning a man who was upset that his wife wanted to be a stay-at-home mother. Slate's advice was to be more understanding with his wife. Slate's advice, even though, wow, Slate got something right. And I want to also open up another topic, digressing just a little bit, but still on topic, but not necessarily reading something written. Is my wife and I went through this conversation. We wanted to have children. We recognized that kids were going to be difficult. And we came to one conclusion that if we were going to have kids, we had to be unselfish. And we were incapable of being unselfish. And until we were, we waited. And when we did, we tried the work thing. I resented the fact that my wife didn't want to work. I thought it was crap. I did. Because here it is, we're in this time where equality and everybody works. And I said, we can combine our incomes and we will elevate faster. You want to take the first year off? That's fine. But we can't afford it to do this. But we had a conversation and she's like, I really want to stay home. We don't make love because I come home. I'm exhausted. I wake up at six in the morning. I go to bed at 10 o'clock. We have no time for each other. You work all day. I work all day. We watch some TV and we go to bed. And it's horrible for our relationship. And I completely concur. But we had to try it, right? It's not that I was being sexist. Is that I was actually being equal. Equality. We both work. We both raise the child. And it wound up being that her lifelong dream, truth, was to be a stay-at-home mom. So who am I to stand in the way of that? I need to go out and make more money, elevate myself in my career, and let her stay home. And, and that's, well, 
help her stay home. I didn't let her do anything. And that's what happened. And there were times and arguments that I would resent it and say, well, why don't you go get a job? And we would say the horrible things that people say to each other. But ultimately, it's been the greatest thing we've ever had. We have two great kids. She's happy. She loves her life. She's amazing. She's beautiful. She looks awesome. She thinks awesome. She does amazing and awesome things. But it starts with conversation. So I like Slate's advice to be more understanding. But you, it, it takes experience to get there. So it is good advice, but this is what Filipovic said. This is good advice, but man, I feel for this letter writer because it's exactly how I would feel if my spouse decided they wanted to be a stay-at-home parent. Filipovic commented. Also, is it really only her decision whether to quit working when she's going to be entirely dependent on him? She then suggested stay-at-home mothers are unambitious, a remark she would later try to walk back. I realize this is like the third rail of the mommy wars, but yeah, lots of super ambitious people marry other super ambitious people because they're attracted to ambition, she wrote. I would have a really, 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 glad she added the fifth really, hard time being married to a spouse who chose not to work. The feminist noted that if she wanted to stay home to run the household, it would be unfair of her to take from her husband's income. If I came to my husband and I said, I'm going to quit my job and dedicate all of my time to keeping our household, now I need your income. I think he, in his rights to say, uh, no, she wrote. Women staying home to raise their babies set bad examples for children, she argued. And now I'm really going to get myself yelled at. But I also think the issue of example setting for a kid is totally fair, a fair one. Filipovic said, what example are you setting when dad works for pay and mom does the care work at home? Lots of reasons not to want to set that example for a child. Among them, girls with working moms do better in school, she claimed. Men with stay-at-home wives are less likely to promote and support women in their workplace. Sons with working mothers do more housework and child care when they grow up. These aren't just individual choices. They are social, seemingly after getting some pushback, Filipovic circled back to her suggestion that raising children is not a real job. Although I agree with some of the things she said, I agree with her that the feelings from a male of, why, why can't you work too, is absolutely real. I had them myself. I agree with her. The rest of what she said, I completely disagree with unequivocally. Everything she said isn't accurate. It isn't true. In fact, I have a more prolific and higher level of respect for women who work and raise kids i can't imagine at all and my daughter does extremely well in school because she has tutelage and the teachers do a crappy job no offense i'm sorry i've said it before especially during covid and we are behind in every single metric when it comes to academia how can we sit here and say teachers are great no they're not they're horrible they're horrible. They may be great people, but they're not good at their jobs because we are behind as a nation. Oh, well, it's the parents' fault. No, it's your responsibility to educate. And yes, parents can make that happen or not happen. But the point is, is don't make blanket statements that having a stay-at-home mom, kids do poorly in school. That's untrue. It's a, it's a complete lie. Teachers have a hard enough job but they also need support and they don't have the tools. They're overworked. Yes, I know all the things. Too many people in the classroom. Please don't make comments about it. They have papers to grade. I understand all this other stuff, blah, blah, blah. But to say it's the hardest job in the world is a lie and reward them for mediocrity is absolutely not okay. They don't need trophies. They need support. They need support from parents. They need engaged parents. But maybe 
both parents working, creates non-engagement is my point. My wife is there to talk to the teachers every single time there's an issue. Maybe that is necessary. Maybe it's important to have one parent stay home. Why not? But truly, there is no Rosetta Stone for this. It's going to be based off what is best for your family, and I don't care what you do, and I don't care how you get there. You can work 80 hours a week and put your kid in daycare. That's what's best for you. Or you can both stay home and run a stay-at-home business. It doesn't matter. And this is the lady's problem. And the line that she crossed is she's meddling into things that are not her business. And she's not a single mother. She's a feminist. She doesn't believe in the Aussie Harriet lifestyle. So what would she possibly know about it except for what she has assumed with derision and cynicism and assumption, speculation, to get to these conclusions that are unfounded. Her answer was muddled, highlighting the apparent importance of the women working outside the house and home, simultaneously blaming our capitalistic society for not valuing stay-at-home motherhood. I can see that this is now going to be around in the circles of, but being a stay-at-home parent is a job, and why don't you value care for work? Care work should be valued much more than it is. It's also good for people to work outside the home, she wrote, The reality in our capitalistic society is that if you are at home full-time, your husband is your boss, and there is no HR department. Should care work be valued much more? Yes. In reality, we live in are women who stay home taking on significant risks. Also, yes. I would also argue that I'm not convinced that this division of labor, one full-time wage earner and one full-time at-home carer, is a good or healthy one, even when you take it out of very salient fact that it's women who are overwhelmingly the at-home carers, she said. At-home work is incredibly isolating. It also occupies a pretty unique space where it's centered on one of the most fundamental familia relationships, parent-child, Filipovic wrote. No other job is like that, which is where staying at home is a job doesn't quite tell the whole story. Viewing a woman's choice to stay home and raise her children and manage the home as a win should be and would be shallow thinking, she said, noting that it's not judgmental for her to weigh in. The point is a lot of the go-to talking points on this issue are really insufficient. The shallowest among them is the dialogue around choice and the claim this is all private family decision making, that it's wrong to comment on this at all because that's judgmental. Well, that's the argument I just made, lady, and you're welcome to come on my show anytime so I can shellac you properly. In the U.S., we give families few options that's baked in, but in this specific instance, I do think it's worth talking about ambition, attraction, and the fact that there are real and tangible benefits to children having a working mother, something we're often hesitant to say, well, because it's not true. She then wrote, walking back her language about stay-at-home mothers and ambition, Filipovic said plenty of them are ambitious, ambitious, noting of intensive parenting. Do you think stay-at-home moms aren't ambitious? Someone asked. Plenty of them are. Welcome to intensive parenting. But to be honest, I would have a really hard time being married to someone who decided they didn't want to direct their ambition into the sole work of raising our child. That's not because I don't think that the work is important, she concluded. It is because it's very inward looking and wrapping one's identity in one's progeny. If you have a passion for child development, great. There are many paths to walk down that do a lot of good for lots of people. I have taken some time on this, and it's it's really hard because I want to be impartial. 
The show's called Don't Unfriend Me, and there are two sides to every story. And I have written a response that I believe will elevate the dialogue and conversation. And I hope she hears it. I hope she listens to it. I hope she opens up her mind. Because I remember when my wife applied for a credit card to Best Buy, and I had a $30,000 credit limit, and she wanted to have her own card. And we made plenty of money. And they asked her her job, and she said, I'm a homemaker. And the credit person said, well, what is that? She goes, I raise my children and provide a healthy, balanced home for my family. She goes, oh, you're a stay-at-home mom. That's not a job. So I am going to recite the line that I said then about five, six years ago because I believed that it summed up my feelings nicely, and then we're going to move on to China. So to Miss Filipovic, I will tell you what I told that Best Buy credit person, representative. I want to make sure I get the terminology right, and I will recite it to you. Fuck you, c- And I'm done. And I don't use that word a lot. Last fall, the U.S. Air Force simulated a conflict set more than a decade in the future that began with a Chinese biological weapon attack that swept through U.S. bases and warships in the Indo-Pacific region. Now, here's what you need to know. Sheer tonnage, the U.S. absolutely manhandles China. Our aircraft carriers are weapons of war, and they are floating cities. They are incredibly devastating to any naval fleet that wants to attack or try to break a blockade or enter waters that are not theirs. However, China has a bigger Navy. And although they have a smaller Navy, when it comes to tonnage from a sheer amount of vessels, they are superior and it's going to increase. Indochina and the Seventh Fleet is one of the smallest fleets in the U.S. arsenal. And it's also one of the furthest. Once that fleet would be sunk and if something like a biological attack happened on an aircraft carrier or water was poisoned or food sources or there was a surprise attack and that aircraft carrier is taken out in order to move other fleets into the region can take up to three weeks and by that time Indochina would be completely locked down now am I talking about a land war in China no that's ridiculous but we're talking about this would be a naval battle most assuredly and whoever controls the shipping lanes controls the world so china is very very dangerous so assuming that biochemical attack happened that a major chinese military exercise was used as cover for the deployment of a massive invasion force so this is this simulation the simulation culminated with chinese missile strikes raining down on u.s bases and warships in the region and a lightning air and amphibious assault on the island of Taiwan. The highly classified war game, which has not been previously made public, took place less than a year after the coronavirus reportedly originating in a Chinese market spread to the crew of the USS Teddy Roosevelt aircraft carrier, taking one of the U.S. Navy's most significant assets out of commission. The aircraft carrier USS Teddy Roosevelt, CVN-71, for those who don't know, leaves its San Diego home port January 17, 2020. And I have a photo with that. The USS Theodore Roosevelt in 2020 uh, left in September in the midst of the war game. Also, actual Chinese combat aircraft intentionally flew over the rarely crossed median line in the Taiwanese Straits, which I've been through several times. 
in the direction of Taipei and unprecedented 40 times and conducted simulated attacks on the island that Taiwan's premier called disturbing. Amid those provocations, Chinese Air Force released a video showing a bomber capable of carrying a nuclear weapon carrying out a simulated attack on Anderson Air Force Base on the U.S. Pacific island of Guam. The title of the Hollywood-like propaganda video was The God of War, the H-6K Bomber, goes on the attack. In the case of the news for the U.S. administration, they failed to get the intended message behind all that provocative military activity. Four days after President Biden took office, a large force of Chinese bombers and fighters flew past Taiwan and launched simulated missile attacks on the USS Roosevelt carrier strike group as it was sailing in international waters in the South China Sea. Little wonder that many foreign affairs and national security experts believe the global pandemic has accelerated trends that were already pushing the United States and China toward a potential confrontation as the world's leading status quo and rising power, respectively. This month, the Council on Foreign Relations released a special report, The United States, China, and Taiwan, a strategy to prevent war, which concluded that Taiwan is becoming the most dangerous flashpoint in the world for a possible war between the U.S. and China. In Senate testimony on Tuesday, the U.S. uh, head of Indo-Pacific Command, Admiral Philip Davidson, warned that he believes China might try and annex Taiwan in this decade. In fact, within the next six years. Meanwhile, a leading Chinese think tank recently described tensions in U.S.-China relations as the worst since the Tiananmen Square massacre in 1989, and it advised Communist Party leaders to prepare for war with the United States. What many Americans don't realize is that years of classified Pentagon war games strongly suggest that the U.S. military would indeed lose that war. More than a decade ago, our war games indicated that the Chinese were doing a good job of investing in military capabilities that would make our preferred model of expeditionary warfare, where we push forces forward and operate out of relatively safe bases and sanctuaries, increasingly difficult. One of the reasons why is because they are building naval bases in those surrounding areas in Indochina and the Philippines and surrounding areas, which eliminate our tactical advantage that we have had since World War II. Air Force Lieutenant General S. Clinton Hynote, Deputy Chief of Staff for Strategy, Integration, and Requirements, told Yahoo News in an exclusive interview, by 2018, the People's Liberation Army had fielded many of those forces in large numbers to include massive arsenals of precision-guided surface-to-air and surface-to-surface missiles, a space-based constellation of navigation and targeting satellites, and the largest navy in the world. At that point, the trend in our war games was not just that we were losing, but we were losing faster. Pinote said, after the 2018 war game, I distinctly remember one of our gurus of war gaming standing in front of the Air Force Secretary and Chief of Staff and telling them that we should never play this war game scenario of a Chinese attack on Taiwan again because we know what is going to happen. The definitive answer, if the U.S. military doesn't change course, is that we're going to lose fast. In that case, an American president would likely be presented with almost a fait accompli. With Beijing continuing to tighten an iron grip on Hong Kong, engaging in deadly skirmishes with India along their shared border, and routinely bullying its smaller neighbors in the South China Sea, the Biden administration recently announced a new Pentagon task force to review U.S. defense policy towards China to be headed by Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin. 
in some news that actually is good for Joe Biden, where he is getting some interesting advice. And I have to say that our defense policies, I believe he is getting the advice he needs to be successful. Now, we're all scared of Joe Biden, but the one thing I want more than anything is a strong defense. And he is at least listening to the advisors that were left over from Donald Trump, which is a good thing. He is meeting with India and Japan and Taiwan and Australia before he meets with China next week, which is a very clear message of who we would ally with if this came down to it. I think Russia would take a bow out and not get involved in any way, shape or form. I think North Korea would align with China. And I think we would have a full scale war in the Indochina area. It's extremely dangerous. But Biden is getting good advice. We must continue to ramp up our defense spending. We just spent $1.9 trillion, And the first instinct for the Democrats is to cut the military budget. And it is the worst idea ever. With the money allocated to defense, we can maintain our influence. But we need more bases in Indochina. We need to lean heavily on India. We need to beef up Diego Garcia, islands in the Philippines, and continue to support Japan in the northern part of Japan and the southern part. Our strategic initiative should be to reinforce Indochina like we reinforce the Middle East and Europe after WW2 and the Middle East after Iraq. Inevitably, the deteriorating security of Taiwan will be a major focus of the new task force. By the way, three of China's standing war plans are built around a Taiwan scenario, Hynote said. They're planning for this. Taiwan is what they think about all the time. In the early 2000s, China experts and military analysts at the RAND Corporation were given a trove of classified U.S. intelligence briefings on Beijing's military plans and weapons programs and were asked to war game a confrontation 10 years into the future. China was in the midst of an unprecedented economic growth spurt that saw its GDP increase annually by double digits with commensurate steep increases in its defensive spending, equally worrisome, The PLA had clearly studied U.S. military operations over the course of two wars against Iraq. Both operations relied on a methodical, months-long buildup of forces to uncontested bases in the region, followed by U.S. aircraft dominating the skies and then carrying out devastating attacks on the enemy's command and control systems, which we talked about with Iran. China's answer was a well-funded strategy that the Pentagon refers to as anti-access area denial. It's A2-AD. We talked about this with Iran as well, meaning it would prevent an adversary like the U.S. from being able to carry out that sort of significant military buildup it carried during the two Iraq wars. The PLA's military plans rely on space-based and airborne surveillance and reconnaissance platforms, massive precision-guided missile arsenals, submarines, militarized man-made islands in the South China Sea, and a host of conventional air and naval forces to hold U.S. and allied bases, ports, and warships in the region at risk. Because it lies only 90 miles from Taiwan, China needs only to hold U.S. forces at bay for a matter of weeks to achieve its strategic objective of capturing Taiwan. Whenever we war-gamed a Taiwan scenario over the years, our blue team routinely got its ass handed to it because in that scenario time is a precious commodity and it plays to China's strength in terms of proximity and capabilities, said David Ochemenek, a senior Rand Corporation analysis. Then maybe you shouldn't use the blue team because gold watch is always superior. Sorry, I had to lead back to my intel days. And former Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Force Development. That kind of lopsided defeat is a visceral experience for U.S. officers on the blue team. 
And as such, the war games have been a great conscientious raising device. But the U.S. military is still not keeping pace with Chinese advances. For that reason, I don't think we're much better off than a decade ago when we started taking this challenge more seriously. Part of the problem is that China advanced its A2-AD strategy while the Pentagon was largely distracted fighting counterterrorism and counterinsurgency, wars in Iraq and Afghanistan for two decades. Beijing is also laser-focused on Taiwan and regional hegemony, while the U.S. military most project power and prepare for potential conflict scenarios all around the globe, given the Pentagon with Ochemenek calls an attention deficit disorder. Finally, there is the complacency of the perennial winner that makes it hard for senior U.S. military officials to believe that another nation would dare to take them on. My response is that China's growing military confidence is manifesting itself in an increasingly belligerent approach to its neighbors, the growing frequency of the PLA's violations of the airspace of Taiwan and Japan, and the bowling of other neighbors in the South China Sea, said Ochemenek. Under Xi Jinping, there has been a dramatic increase in such provocations compared to a decade ago, and I think it's grounded in his belief that militarily China is strong enough now to credibly challenge U.S. By 2017, the Pentagon, led by then-Secretary of Defense Jim Mattis, started to take notice when we were deploying the national defense strategy in 2017, the trend lines looked very bad via V China and got a lot worse as you projected into the future said Elbridge Colby, the former Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Strategy and Force Development. Quote, yet despite that fact, there were, and I think still are, a lot of people who resisted the idea that war with China is even possible, let alone losable. That's why both strategic level and more operational war games were so important. They help show how these things are possible, but also how we can redress the problem. In 2018, the Defense Department issued a seminal national defense strategy identifying great power competition with China and Russia and not terrorism as the primary challenge to the U.S. After the lopsided blue team defeat in the Air Force annual war game in 2018, senior officers and defense officials began giving a classified overmatch brief to select members of Congress. In the most recent war game, the Pentagon tested the impact of potential capabilities and military concepts that are still on the drawing board in many cases. The blue team, which represented U.S. forces, adopted a more defensive and dispersed posture, less reliant on large, vulnerable bases, ports, and aircraft carriers in a conflict with the red team, which represented China. The strategy strongly favored large numbers of long-range mobile strike systems to include anti-ship cruise missile batteries, mobile rocket artillery systems, unmanned mini-submarines, mines, and robust surface-to-air missiles batteries for air defense. A premium was put on surveillance and reconnaissance capabilities for both early warning and accurate intelligence to enable quicker decisions by U.S. policymakers and more capable command and control system to coordinate the actions of more dispersed forces. We created a force that had resiliency at its core, and the red team looked at that force and knew that it would take a tremendous amount of firepower to knock it out, said Hynote. The biggest insight of the war game, he said, was revealed when he talked afterward with the red team leader who played the role of the PLA's top general. The red team leader is the most experienced and aggressive officer in these war games across the Defense Department. And when he looked initially at the resiliency of our defense posture, both in Taiwan and the region, he said, no, I'm not going to attack, recalled High Note. If we can design a force that creates that level of uncertainty and causes Chinese leaders to question whether they can accomplish their goals militarily, 
I think that's what deterrence looks like in the future. And it is an extremely popular one, as most countries that do not have the military budget to compete with a larger rival will do just that, as I explained, in Iran. And the United States does have the military offensively. Defense is always the best strategy when you have an aggressor. And the U.S. has the mighty capability to do so. But arrogance will kill us quicker than Pearl Harbor almost snapped our spines. We have to be careful. We have to look for secondary strikes. We have to look for the soft targets and beef them up. We will not be able to rely on nuclear deterrence to stop this. If China goes into Taiwan, we will then be considered the aggressor in the area. We have to remain vigilant. We have to support the surrounding territories. We have to ensure we are building up our naval forces for a defensive posture. That means integrated air defense systems, surface-to-surface, and surface-to-air missiles is hugely important. And the ability for electronic countermeasures to stop the reconnaissance of China and their ability to communicate effectively with their homeland. Despite loud alarms raised by the war games, the Pentagon has been slow to adjust its long-term spending plans or to invest in the kinds of military capabilities necessary to defend Taiwan or contested island chains in the South China Sea. Instead, older weapon systems like massive warships, short-range tactical fighter aircraft, and heavy tank battalions continue to enjoy support from loyal constituencies both inside the Pentagon and in Congress. What's needed, experts say, are bolder actions like the Marine Corps recent decision to completely divest itself of tanks and heavy armor by 2030 in order to invest in anti-ship missiles and mobile strike teams optimized for a conflict with China. Smart. On a sober note, Hynote pointed out that the blue team force posture tested in the recent war game is still not the one reflected in current Defense Department spending plans. We're beginning to understand what kind of U.S. military force it's going to take to achieve the national defense strategy goals, he said. But that's not the force we're planning and building today. Now, I want you to be very, very conscientious of this topic. Yes, it sounds like doom and gloom. This has happened many times before. We changed power plays with Russia probably 300 times over the 20 years. The Cold War was literally a race neck and neck. And it looked like those those little balloons that you spray and pop up at carnival games, and one would get bigger, smaller, bigger, smaller, bigger, smaller, and they would trade ponies, so to speak, in the race. China is most assuredly ramping up. Now, here's the thing. No one's going to get in a land war in Asia. They're going to do a proxy battle. They are going to be far away from their land. Now, 90 miles isn't that far. It would be like literally us trying to take over Cuba. But if we did, what would happen? Would Russia send up nukes? No. Would we take it? Yes. Would they try to take it from us? No. And that's what we need to understand. There would be a retaliation, but it would probably be something in Turkey. We need to understand that this conflict will be an ebb and flow. It will scale. It won't be one day war and one day not. The only way is that if China has the cojones, I don't know what balls mean in Chinese or Mandarin, I apologize or Cantonese, or any other language. But I will tell you, if they go into Taiwan now, they will most assuredly take it over. And the U.S. will have a much harder time taking it back. That is when a war of epic proportions will happen. If we defend and we build up and we make the region stronger, that is the best choice. 
I can only hope that the budget stays the same, that we do not start cutting military spending, because the largest threat that we have is China, because they want what they don't have, and we desperately cannot have them try to take what we don't want them to, which is Taiwan. Folks, that is it. It is an interesting evening. I appreciate you staying with me this Friday. If you like what you heard, if you didn't like what you hear, heard, if you don't like what you, let's try that again. I did so well. If you like what you heard, fantastic. Make sure you like, share, and subscribe. You can do that right over here and follow. It helps. Every time you hit a like, a share, a follow, it means a lot and it helps our site grow. Thank you for doing it. Make sure you stop by the website at www.dontunfriendme.com. And if you didn't like what you hear, maybe next time it will be better. But all I ask is that you don't unfriend me. Tonight, we will go out like we always do with the Veteran Crisis Hotline. 1-800-273-8255-PRESS-1. 22 veterans a day commit suicide. It is way too many. They need your help. They need conversation. They need you to put your arms around. Veterans do not like to talk about their service. They keep it close to their vest. And only you can do that with patience, love, and possibly someone else helping you. VCL will do that. If you can't breach that conversation, call me. I'll do it. Send me a a, a direct message. If I got to get on a plane, I will. Whatever it takes to help that veteran, if I can help, please ask me. And if that doesn't work, you can go to don'tunfriendme.com, click on the VCL link, and you'll be connected to a Skype operator absolutely free of charge where you can begin the conversation. If you are a civilian and you are not military, they will also help you. They turn no man, woman, or child away. All you have to do is ask for help. To the feminist lady who insulted all single mothers out there, I stand by my comment. You are indeed that. I will not apologize for speaking the truth. And to China, I will tell you, you may be worried of a Cold War, and you very well should, because China is ramping up and growing extremely fast. We have one option, and that is to build at the same rate. We will see if President Biden can finally make a decision worth his presidency. I will see you Monday. I might have a five for fighting. I may not. Have a good evening. Go Avs. And remember, it's Red Friday. Thanks, everybody.